0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 14th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, a record total of 533 journalists are currently detained worldwide, according to an annual roundup of violence and abuse against journalists. A newly discovered piece of debris from lost Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 reinforces the theory that it was crashed deliberately. We'll check in with the team at Bloomberg for the latest business news and also... De Julián Álvarez,
1: viene para Molina, viene el centro, busca para Messi, Golazo!
0: ¡Gol! Messi mania has consumed, or further consumed, Argentina. We'll check in with Buenos Aires the morning after a night of celebrations. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. The crackdown on protests in Iran has helped push the number of journalists imprisoned worldwide to a record high of 533 in 2022, according to a report by Reporters Without Borders. That figure is up from 488 in 2021, which was already a record. China, where censorship and surveillance have reached extreme levels, continues to be the world's most prolific jailer of journalists, with a total of 110 currently being held well joining me now is rebecca vincent director of operations and campaigns at reporters without borders um rebecca first of all uh, is this a long-term worldwide trend uh, of more of my profession getting locked up or iran and china outliers
2: uh, they're not outliers, unfortunately. I mean, the, the the figures are staggering there, but this is unfortunately part of a longer-term trend, both in terms of detentions of journalists and also in the continued violence against journalists and impunity for these killings. So unfortunately, year by year, that does continue to grow.
0: And are there particular factors to which you attribute that uptick in you know unofficial violence against journalists and official harassment of journalists?
2: I think it's a confluence of many factors, crises that we have pointed to for years. And of course, now in the world, everybody has emerged from the pandemic, perhaps more journalists are back out in the field doing their jobs. And this year, we have, of course, a new war, which has proven deadly for media as well, with eight journalists killed uh, in the first six months of the war in Ukraine. But actually, in terms of the most violent countries, this was really a record deadly year in the Americas in particular. Um, I want to highlight Mexico, which has been for a number of Years now, the, the world's most dangerous country for journalists, with 11 killed this year. But looking a little longer term at Mexico, 80 journalists have been killed in connection with their work there in the past decade um but not just Mexico this year we also saw killings of journalists in Haiti in Brazil and in the United States so that region in particular is one to watch in terms of uh where it has been particularly deadly for journalists in 2022
0: and and how much of a factor is either explicit or implicit incitement of violence against journalists by actual politicians you know up to and including the populist leaders in actual you would think democratic countries <sighs>
2: Certainly the behavior of politicians, the words and actions of of political leaders everywhere does uh, impact the the climate for trust in media, and it can inflame tensions, certainly. But I would say the, the sort of explicit sort of comments were more Obvious, perhaps a few years ago, when we really saw the strongman model take off. I think we've had this conversation before on the, perhaps this program, Andrew, about, you know, when we had uh, leaders like Donald Trump really actively stoking that. We can point to those examples still, but I'd say there are less uh, anecdotal examples of that. It's it's just more sort of a, a global trend uh, that has really become So dangerous for the profession. It's not just violence, though. It's also detentions. And there are some trends that have been a bit different this year. China has longer term by far been the largest jailer of journalists in the world. And that didn't change this year. We have uh, at least 110 journalists uh, detained in connection with their work in China today. Um, But the situation in Iran is really worth watching because in in such a short space of time, in just the first month of the protests that are continuing there, Iran shot up to the third biggest jailer of journalists. So today, at least 47 journalists are detained in Iran, and many of those are new cases uh, just during this period of protests alone. Also worth flagging Myanmar, which um, I think doesn't get the public attention that it deserves, but at least 62 journalists are behind bars in Myanmar. The Most um, most of those were targeted in the immediate aftermath of the February 2021 coup. Many of them are being actively sentenced now, so there's developments week by week in Myanmar, and I think it doesn't get as much attention as it should being the second largest jailer of journalists in the world.
0: It was- What has an organisation like Reporters Without Borders learned, though, about what is an effective response, especially when you're dealing with countries like Iran and China, which probably aren't terrifically interested in the opinions of Western human rights organisations?
2: But it's not just the opinions of us. It's, it's sort of a, a universal principle. These are commitments that every country, especially you know those who are members of the United Nations have committed themselves uh, to protecting free expression. Press freedom is an important part of that. And it's not for us. It's for the people in these countries. So it's worth bearing that in mind. It also impacts our international information systems. But ultimately, when journalists are targeted in this way, the first real impact is on the populations in those countries. So in China, of course, we know um, that m- many Chinese people are not well-informed unless they have ability to access the open internet, which is extremely difficult from China in Iran. Now, the, the first target there is the population of Iran, many of whom are not able to access independent reporting on what's happening. And so that is the intention of this uh, in in places where the regimes are either allowing this or actively encouraging this sort of uh, these violations of the press. It's never just about journalists. It's about the public. Is there
0: then something else that Western governments could do other than cease actively baiting journalists, which is to actually lead by example, if you like, and encourage an open media and thereby hopefully demonstrate to the people in countries like China and Iran the value that it has
2: absolutely i think it's time for more actions not just words we have the right sorts of commitments in place we have international infrastructure at bodies like the un at regional bodies in our own national laws and our politicians raise it when it's convenient but i think we can see the inconsistencies when uh when our governments are willing to raise this with certain places and not with others i mean some of the worst offenders like saudi arabia we still have impunity for the horrific killing of jamal hashaji over four years ago when there's never justice in cases like this and when it's selective when and where our governments will raise us. Of course, uh, that only serves to further worsen the situation. And although we don't have the staggering figures of journalists jailed in our democracies as we do in other countries, sometimes a single case can undermine the ability of these states to engage effectively with their peers. Um, I want to point to the case of Julian Assange, still detained in the UK while the US actively seeks his extradition. That single case really undermines the ability of both the US and UK uh, to, to champion these issues elsewhere. And so I would say certainly it's time to lead by example, both in releasing Assange, stopping that case and in general in being more consistent about when and where our governments will raise these issues with other states.
0: Rebecca Vincent at Reporters Without Borders, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Emma Searle with today's other headlines.
3: Thanks, Andrew. Ukrainian air defences have shot down all 13 drones launched by Russia in new strikes on Kyiv in the surrounding area this morning. Several buildings were damaged in the latest attack, but no casualties have been reported. China has stopped releasing comprehensive data on new Covid cases after the dropping of mandatory testing meant the numbers no longer reflected reality. The country will only report symptomatic cases from now on. The Democratic Republic of Congo has announced a three-day period of national mourning after more than 120 people were killed following the worst floods in years in Kinshasa. Major roads in the city centre were submerged as heavy rains continued for hours and several homes collapsed. And polling has closed in the Pacific Island nation of Fiji's national election, with voter turnout of less than 60%, marking the lowest in a decade. The high-stakes contest between two ex-military coup leaders is seen as a test of the country's democracy and of China's quest for Pacific influence. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Emma. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It's time now for a roundup of the latest headlines from Latin America. Uh, I'm joined by Lucinda Elliott, Monocle's Latin America affairs correspondent. Uh, Lucinda, first of all, a consequential World Cup semi-final for Argentina last night. Is anything of the country still standing up following the celebrations?
4: Well, yes, Andrew. This morning there will be many sore heads, but it's very <laughs> calm. The match, uh, the match itself, they were really enjoying it yesterday. Unlike the sort of nail-biter quarter-final with the Netherlands, you know, it was sort of goal after goal yesterday with fans worshiping Messi, Messi, and sort of an ovation of sorts. So, yeah, so quite a few days to be here, and all hopes for a Sunday win.
0: I mean Is it possible to quantify what a moment this would be? I mean, it's a big moment, obviously, for any country when it wins the World Cup and Argentina has already won two. But will it feel like either? I don't know. They've put one over on Brazil. That's got to feel pretty good to them. Or, or does it feel more like a holiday from the country's chronic uh, economic and political difficulties?
4: I think it's sort of a combination of the two. In fact, one fan sort of tried to describe their commitment to the game in Argentina to me because it is this unbelievable sense of sort of passion. And she sort of said, it's like church. You're not religious, but you go at Christmas and you go at Easter and football and the World Cup is like that. For non football fans, you come out and support the team no matter what. And I think that's a very interesting example. I'm, I'm very surprised at the number of very young girls who, you know, were out supporting until the early hours yesterday. Um, but yes, given the pretty, dire economic situation and the political turmoil up top, this is sort of seen as sort of like a shot of adrenaline or, or morphine in a way, when the country is obviously in the economy is extremely sick. Um, and that that possibly will, will wear off, of course.
0: Uh, well, indeed, we, we will come back uh, shortly to the, the various maladies that the World Cup may be inoculating Argentina against. But between now and the final on Sunday, what are you anticipating Buenos Aires is going to be like? Is, is literally a Everybody going about their days wearing a blue and white shirt with Lionel Messi's name on the back.
4: I mean, there's not a window that is not filled (laughs) with sky blue and white. I mean, even the public buses yesterday were flying the flag. Police patrol cars were chanting from their radios, um, you know, just shouting Argentina, Argentina. And as I say, tens of thousands of people actually walked to the downtown area, to the obelisk, actually many families as well, because it was sort of early evening. And I think that the tone is just very different from any sort of period that they've experienced in, in recent history. Essentially, you know, the country has experienced an awful lot of economic downturns. People mainly turn out to that area to protest <laughs> more than anything else, protest against the government or, or, or certain issues. And actually there they're gathering in, in celebration. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be I think the, the, the barbecues will continue well into Sunday. Um, but I have to say that the construction workers across the street from me are at work. So, so things haven't completely ground to a halt. Uh,
0: I, I would be interested to see how much work is being done on that site on Monday, should they get a result against France. Uh, we will move on, however, to something of that economic and political turmoil we were discussing. Uh, the latest travails of Christina Kirchner.
4: Yes. So Christina Kirchner, she was found guilty last week of of corruption. And now the talk has turned to obviously what happens next. Um, In terms of sort of legally, Kirchner can obviously still appeal the ruling first to the criminal court of appeals. And then if the sentence is ratified, she can take this all the way up to the Supreme Court, which means that this process could drag on for years. Um, and during that time, under Argentine law, she's free to continue in her role as vice president and also run for public office, um, no doubt using this judgment to really rally her supporters, who who shouldn't be underestimated, you know. I mean, Kirchner still polls anywhere between 30 to 35 percent of public support in Argentina, and that is despite dozens of scandals and despite her sort of divisiveness and um she'll no doubt portray herself as a a victim really hoping to 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 retain influence in the coming years she is also protected right (laughs) as vice president also has the senate uh she has strong legal protections there's an election in october next year she said this week that she has no intention to run for anything uh be that as a governor or as president um so she may lose those buffers if she keeps to her word but the impression really here is that this ruling last week is unlikely to sort of meaningfully affect her power or, or long-term electoral competitiveness that Kirchner has.
0: I mean, is this one of those things where she has developed a sort of cult-like following and even a judgment of this sort against her makes, you know, d- does not shift a single supporter?
4: Certainly, but I mean, as I say, she has a core set of supporters. There are many more people who are obviously against her, but also against the, the you know, the left wing government that she 's a part of i mean i wouldn 't underestimate that Argentina is really on the edge. You know people, despite you know the celebrations yesterday are, are tired. inflation is hurtling towards one hundred percent this year. I mean, your purchasing power evaporates more and more each month, and all of this, as I say, under a government that 's managed to blame particularly Christina most of these issues on external factors, first the pandemic, then the war in Ukraine. And that argument is wearing very thin. And I think, you know, this tournament has acted, as I say, as a sort of adrenaline shot. But, you know, on every level, the country is heading for a major economic meltdown. And Kirchner's tactical, she knows this, she knows it's going to be very difficult to win an election next year. And already last week, she said, you know what, I'm not going to run for anything. I'm turning 70 and in february and um, i'm going to go back home <laughs> so you'll we'll have to
0: see uh, and just finally we should address apparently an boom in urban music in chile what is going on there
4: so at these musa music awards they're organized by a group of local radio stations in chile and they polled audiences on the best songs and albums of this past year, and listeners gave the highest rankings to Chilean, Trap and Reggaeton. I mean, I wish Fernando was here to sort of comment on exactly who these artists are, but Spotify, um, the streaming platform, has also detected that the amount of Chilean rather than international music streamed in the country rose 67% in the last year, and sort of behind this growing popularity is possibly the COVID lockdowns, which has also meant that there's an unusually high number of New recordings, new artists, but um, but yeah, apparently Polymart West Coast is an incredibly popular artist, not only in Chile, but in Madrid and Mexico City. So yeah, take a listen. Pretty summary, I imagine.
0: Lucinda Elliott, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You're back with the briefing on Monocle 24, a newly discovered piece of debris from flight MH370. The Malaysia Airlines Boeing 777, which disappeared in 2014, suggests that the pilot lowered the plane's landing gear shortly before it plunged into the ocean, supporting the theory that the aircraft was crashed deliberately. The component, also known as a trunnion door, was found in the possession of a Madagascan fisherman 25 days ago, becoming the first physical evidence suggesting that one of the pilots purposefully tried to destroy the aircraft. Behind these claims is Richard Godfrey, a retired aerospace engineer who believes he has solved the mystery of the airliner's whereabouts after spending years studying satellite and radio communications. He joins us now. Um, Richard, first of all, this new piece uh, of physical evidence, um, what does it tell us and, and how does it tell us it?
1: Well, it's uh, an important find. It's actually the 37th item of floating debris that has been found and handed in uh, to the authorities. The difference on this piece is uh, that it is definitely a movable panel which uh, suggests it fits and aligns with with a particular uh, trunnion door, as you called it, um, in the main uh, landing gear. Um, when it opens, it opens several doors on the underside of a Boeing. On this piece, there is damage uh, going right through uh, one inch thick uh, composite uh, reinforced material. And it shows that the landing door was was open um, at the time of, of crash. Um, now, you normally, if you're doing an emergency landing uh, on the ocean, you extend the flaps at least partially, and you keep the landing uh, gear closed um, in order to allow maximum time to float after uh, impact. In this case, neither the flaps were uh, opened, that's been confirmed by the Australian uh, authorities, Uh, but now we can show the landing gear was extended. Both of these factors together are uh, very suspicious.
0: So, this then does reinforce the theory that the aircraft was crashed deliberately by one of the pilots?
1: Well, you say one of the pilots. We don't actually know uh, whether there was a hijack uh, mm. whether, and who the active pilot was. What we do know is that there was an active pilot right throughout the seven and a half hours of flight until fuel exhaustion, and that that active pilot uh, deliberately diverted, deliberately uh, chose a location in the middle of the Indian Ocean as far away as possible from anywhere or any airport. And you wouldn't do that if you were trying to save the aircraft and save the passengers. So to my mind, uh, we have an active pilot who deliberately was trying to destroy the evidence with a high-speed impact, and sink uh, the aircraft as fast as possible uh, after impact with uh, opening the landing gear.
0: Are we any closer to figuring out where, what I assume, the bulk of the wreckage is?
1: Yes, we are a lot closer, and I'm in regular contact with Ocean Infinity, who Uh, are um, willing to go back and and search um, at the location that i have uh, identified Um, they want to do that with their new technology which will come online next year Um, and uh, these are new autonomous ships with autonomous underwater vehicles that uh, can search uh, to the depths of three or four thousand meters in the Indian Ocean uh, that are relevant in this particular case. So I'm very hopeful um, we will continue the search. Uh, It will be later next year, I think, uh, according to Ocean Infinity. Um, but sooner or later, we will find the wreckage.
0: As things stand, though, because we, we have talked about this before, uh, how cooperative and or enthusiastic about ongoing investigations are Malaysian authorities?
1: Well, the Malaysian authorities have been contacted Uh, but I've had no answer, either from uh, Anthony Loke, who is the new Minister of Transport in Malaysia and ultimately responsible for any new search that they authorize. Uh, I've had no contact back from the AAIB in Malaysia, who are the um, aircraft investigation uh, body. Um, We've had interest from the ATSB in Australia, uh, but... uh, Uh, That was unofficial by the back door by a former member of the ATSB, um, uh, Pete Foley, who managed uh, back then the search uh, conducted by ATSB. We've had interest from the French authorities where this is an ongoing criminal investigation. Um, But uh, I have to say it's like pushing treacle uphill a little bit uh, to get people actually interested in Madagascar where the debris was found the uh, civil aviation authority the uh, called BEA the Bureau de Enquête Aerospatiale is I think the uh, abbreviation BEA in Mad- Madagascar have clearly said they're not interested uh, because previous pieces found and handed in uh, just lingered in Madagascar for six months before they were uh, collected and there was objection to fund any uh, packaging or delivery or crating, freighting of any item uh, to, uh, to Malaysia or elsewhere, so it's, uh, it's difficult.
0: Richard Godfrey, thank you for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24.
2: Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15.
0: You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24, and let's get a roundup now of some of the day's business headlines with Ewan Potts at Bloomberg. Um, Ewan, first of all, an inflation reading from the UK, and I suppose it's what passes for good news now that it's not quite as bad as we were expecting.
5: Yeah, consumer prices rose 10.7% from a year October from a year earlier in November in the UK. Now that is obviously a punchy reading and it emphasizes cont- continued pain for consumers, but it was down on last month which was 11.1% and it was better than economists were expecting. Now the uh, decline in inflation largely due to the cost of petrol, used cars uh, also falling in price uh, over the month. Uh, some of the other contributors to the slight downtick in inflation tobacco clothing computer games and hotel stays but uh, food and non-alcoholic beverages well there's still no good news on that they are up by 16 and a percent on a year ago so the poorest families who spend a lot more of their money on uh, energy and on food but well, they are still going to feel the pain from these uh, inflation numbers uh, we're going to get uh, Bank of England rate decision uh, tomorrow policymakers expected to deliver their ninth rate hike uh, in a year, uh, they are desperate to stop inflation becoming entrenched uh, in the U.S. We've got another uh, better than expected inflation reading, a key gauge of U.S. consumer prices are posting its smallest monthly advance since August of last year uh, core inflation and the main u.s inflation readings both ticking down u.s inflation currently 7.1 percent in the year to november that was down from 7.7 percent in the previous month that was also better than expected so this is a really a key uh, a key number studied by investors uh, inflation in the world's uh, biggest economy used car prices again a big factor down three percent just in the course of one month in america uh, energy prices dropping and air flares airfares also down but the same story in the US food prices are also still going up.
0: I mean dare we hope though nevertheless that inflation might have peaked
5: Well, I think the uh, expectation, the understanding from markets is inflation, certainly in the US, has now peaked. You can't be certain, but we've had a number of lower readings now. I think in Europe, uh, the story is a little bit different. I think it's a bit too soon to say that in Europe. We're still, if you look at the chart, we're still very close. to The top inflation hasn't really come down very much. And of course, in Europe, we have the uh, energy situation, which they just don't have in America. Uh, Those uh, natural gas prices uh, seeing soaring domestic energy bills, including for electricity, Uh, in Europe and that has really turbocharged inflation in in Europe and that has been less of a factor uh, in the US. I think the key thing which central banks will be keen not to happen is for a wage price spiral to develop and particularly in the US labour market is still extremely strong. Uh, Employers in most sectors are continuing to add jobs and to raise wages, keen uh, not to lose people amongst such a uh, tight pool of employees. And if wages keep going up, then that is a problem for the central bank because that will probably feed into wage growth. But yeah, some, some pretty good news on this front. And we have some big news from the world's biggest company. Yeah, for the first time ever, Apple is preparing to allow alternative app stores on iPhones and iPads. It is part of a sweeping overhaul aimed at complying with strict new rules from the European Union, which comes place in 2024. Now, you remember this is Uh, a simmering row, a long running row between uh, Apple and a number of regulators around the world and uh, a number of uh, developers of apps, software makers. Particularly there was that fight if you remember we reported before from Epic Games uh, who make uh, Fortnite. They waged uh, a legal battle with Apple over the App Store fees. Apple takes uh, some 15 to 30% of all the money spent on its app store you can imagine that adds up to a huge amount of money and this is a massive bone of contention for app store makers of bloomberg understands this is a bloomberg uh, scoop that apple is working to allow third-party app stores uh, on its devices this is something that they've resisted doing for years and years but now it looks like uh, the european union is pushing them to do that i
0: mean just a final quick thought on that ewan is, is this a rare example of apple realizing that this is a fight that there isn't any
5: point in picking that they are better are off just sucking this one up and, and proceeding but well, it feels like they've been forced into it. I mean, they fought the court case uh, against Apple and they won uh, against uh, Epic, I should say, uh, and they won that. So Apple really determined to hold on to this monopoly. They say that uh, it is in uh, iPhone and iPad users' interest that everything goes through the App Store because they can kind of curate the uh, content, they can make it look good, they can sh- ensure that it complies with all the security rules. As they say, it is better to keep everything in the ecosystem and that is better for their customers. So I don't think there's uh, any case we made that Apple uh, keen on this change, but it does feel like the European Union has used its regulatory muscle to push them in this direction. It'll be interesting to see what regulators do uh, elsewhere in the world. Once uh, one jurisdiction has done it, perhaps uh, others will come along and, uh, and do the same thing. Ewan Potts, thank you for joining us. That is
0: all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time, midday UK. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.